from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. If you find yourself in the great camp of the uncommitted and are disturbed by it, this is the way to move into the camp of Christ's followers. First, forsake all that can keep you from him, and second, confess him publicly. Will you do it? Will you say, yes, I have been uncommitted, but I will turn from my sin and my own plans for myself, and I will follow Jesus. If you do, God will bless you, will save you. The Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, His Hour Not Yet Come. During World War II, Switzerland declared itself a neutral country. This nation chose not to take either side in the midst of this monumental conflict. Yet even though World War II had a tremendous impact on world history, a far greater conflict is going on today. Do you follow Jesus, or are you opposed to Him? Perhaps you have respect and a positive opinion about Christ, but you are not willing to commit yourself to Him. You want to remain neutral, yet the Bible declares that this is impossible. You must choose what side you are on. The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 54 through 57. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with a message entitled, His Hour Not Yet Come. Many people go through life being uncommitted on everything, but there's one point at which no one can remain uncommitted. I think we have to look first at the end of chapter 11 in John's Gospel. The end of chapter 11 marks an important division in the Gospel, second in importance perhaps only to the close of chapter 12. It closes what has been called by some scholars the Book of Signs. According to these commentators, John is to be divided into four major parts, the prelude and introduction involving the whole of chapter 1, the Book of Signs, involving chapters 2 through 11, the Passion Narrative, chapters 12 through 20, and the Postscript, which is chapter 21. Thus, the verses we are to study mark the halfway point in the Gospel and form a transition to the beginning of the last and most eventful week of Christ's ministry. In my own outline of the Gospel, the break at the end of chapter 11 is of less importance than the break at the end of chapter 12, for 12 sums up the public ministry, explaining why as a whole the people did not receive Jesus, and 13 introduces us to the entirely different and very private final conversations of the Lord with his disciples. Nevertheless, there's enough of a break at the end of chapter 11 to make the verses that we find here significant. For one thing, 
The verses reflect a great tension, a tension broken finally only by the dramatic appearance of Jesus in Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. For another thing, they clearly summarize the point to which the three great protagonists in the final struggle had come. These protagonists were the people, the leaders of the people, and Jesus. Therefore, in summarizing the period of Christ's public ministry centered in the signs, we should look at each one. Now I've said that there were three great protagonists in the final struggle with which the last half of John deals, but strictly speaking, the people are hardly great protagonists. They're important. They figure in the action and that the Pharisees and the chief priests proceed as they do because of their fear that the people will riot in support of Jesus if they arrest him openly. But still they are hardly great protagonists, for they seem generally confused. They are onlookers, spectators, as the majority of people have always been and most are today. The situation was this. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and this was so spectacular and so public that the leaders of the people had proceeded to hold a council at which the decision was reached to arrest Jesus, bring him to trial, and execute him. Jesus, however, knew that his hour was not fully come. It was close at hand. Within days, he would go up to Jerusalem for the final time. Still, it was not yet quite at hand. Jesus left the area of Jerusalem with his disciples in order to go to a place where he could not easily be found. The scripture says, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went from there unto a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. It's not known for certain where this city was, but it was probably near Bethel and thus about 15 miles north of Jerusalem, near the wilderness country that divided the highlands of Judah from the lush valley of the Jordan River. It may be the town mentioned in Second Chronicles 13, verse 19. All this had happened on the verge of the Passover, however, and this meant that at the very time when Jesus left the area of the capital, many Jews from throughout the country were going up to Jerusalem. Before they could attend any feast, they had to be ceremonially clean. So, many customarily arrived in Jerusalem early with the object of purifying themselves through the prescribed ceremonial washings and offerings. All this took time, so while they waited, they apparently gathered in little groups and eagerly discussed the major topic of the hour. "'Where is Jesus?' they asked. "'What think ye, that he will not come to the feast?' The way they phrased the question indicates that they did not expect him to come, for they knew, as Jesus did, that the leaders had determined to arrest and execute him. True, they had not yet set themselves in opposition to Jesus, as the Pharisees and chief priests had done, but neither had they come out for him. Moreover, they were content merely to observe the outcome, which they knew might well mean the execution of a perfectly innocent man, and to do it even while they went about the ceremonial aspects of their very ceremonial religion. What matter that Jesus was innocent? They would see what would happen and enjoy it. What matter that he was God's own Passover who should that very week give his life for the sins of his people? It did not matter to them. 
so long as they could enjoy their own Passover with its delightful ceremonies. You think this is too hard a judgment on these poor sheep? Then what about this quotation from the Babylonian Gemara, dating in its edited form from about A.D. 550? The Gemara is the written commentary on the Mishnah. It says this, Tradition reports that on the evening of the Passover, Jesus was crucified, and that this took place after an officer had during forty days publicly proclaimed, This man who by his deception has seduced the people ought to be crucified. Whosoever can allege anything in his defense, let him come forward and speak. But no one found anything to say in his defense. He was hanged, therefore, on the evening of the Passover. Now I know, of course, that the Gemara is not inspired. It does not even claim to be. The words quoted may only be a justification of their action by the leaders. But there's no need to be skeptical of these words, and there's every reason to believe that this is precisely the way the leaders went about what they did. If this is right, then we have here people who were interested in Jesus, even sympathetic to Jesus, but who would not stick out their own necks in order to be identified with his cause even when they were invited to do so. Moreover, they would even be religious while they looked on and watched him be crucified. I think we see something similar to this at the present time. Today, throughout America, there are thousands of people who while they are very careful about their church membership and about the details of Christian worship, nevertheless are in their hearts unwilling to be identified with Jesus and thus in fact reject him. Oh, they may have been baptized. They may faithfully attend the Lord's Supper. They may even be officers in the church of which they're members, but they will not come out for Jesus. So God looks down upon their empty rites and pronounces them to be a curse, for they are that by which they bring down judgment upon their own soul. We can understand why they refuse to speak up, why they are found in Jerusalem and not with Jesus. It's hard to be with one who has become an outcast. It's a fearful thing to be asked, are you not one of them? But this is where we should be, nonetheless. So let me ask where you are. Are you? with Jesus? Is his cause and experience your own? Do you stand for him? Or are you only pretending at religion? You should be straightforward and face these things as they truly are before him. Now the second of the protagonists who figure in the events of Christ's last week are the rulers. These were the chief priests and Pharisees, according to our text, and they had given a commandment that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should tell them that they might take him. These men were opposed to Jesus and were determined to eliminate his presence from their lives and land. It's an amazing fact, but a true one, that the raising of Lazarus from the dead had intensified the hostility of these rulers to Jesus. We might have expected them to have been convinced by the miracles least, we would expect them to have been curious about them. But neither of these things happened. Rather, instead of belief or curiosity, we find hatred. We have seen the same thing before, of course, at the beginning of chapter 5, where their hostility originated. 
We find that they were angered that Jesus had healed the impotent man who had spent 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And why? Because Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath. They seem to have been entirely insensitive to the needs of the man and indifferent to the great wonder that had been performed by Jesus. Several pages later, in chapter 9, we find that they become even more angry at the healing of the man born blind. And again, it's because of a violation of their little rules for the Sabbath. They do not even marvel at the great healing, nor do they rejoice with the one who had been so miraculously delivered from a long nighttime of darkness. Notice further that these were not acts performed over a period of many centuries by many different men or in far-flung regions of the Jewish state for which they might therefore be excused if they lacked certain knowledge. These acts were done either in Jerusalem or in the immediate area of the city by one man during a period of just a few years. What is more, they were amply witnessed by many hundreds if not thousands of people. Still, they would not believe. Oh, what a picture of what traditional religion, that is, religion without the divine life in the soul, can do. It hardens the heart, narrows the mind, dulls the conscience, and sets the will against the true God who is revealed in Jesus. Are there any such listening? If so, I fear for you. Far better to be an atheist. Far better to be the most ungodly among the ungodly than to be a hypocrite who masks hatred for the Son of God under the guise of a formal worship of his Father. Will you not fear for yourself? Will you not so shake for fear that you will turn in desperation to the Savior? Do not wait if this is your status. Turn now. The days hurry on. The moment of grace may be fleeting. God grant that his grace might extend to you and that you might find yourself walking in the steps of Saul of Tarsus, who originally opposed Christ, but later served him, rather than in the steps of Caiaphas. Well, the third of the three great protagonists is Jesus. And yet he hardly seems to be a protagonist at this point, so great is his mastery of the situation. Three factors contribute to that mastery. First, there is his knowledge of men and with that of all that was transpiring. This is suggested at the beginning of the passage by the word therefore. We're told that Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went from there unto a country near to the wilderness. What does it mean, Jesus therefore walked no more openly? Simply that he knew of the decision of the council reported just one verse earlier. We have no reason to suppose that someone told him what had transpired, at least Nothing like that is suggested. Jesus simply knew what was happening. No wonder then that John the Evangelist, who witnessed this, told us earlier in the Gospel, but Jesus did not commit himself unto men, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Nothing that anyone has ever done has caught him by surprise. Second, Jesus had a sense of God's timing. Jesus knew that he was to be crucified. He did not shrink from it. In fact, he prays just one chapter later, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause I came unto this hour. 
though his hour was coming, it was nevertheless not yet come, and so he waited. At the precise moment, and with great determination, he entered Jerusalem. And this leads to the third point, his courage, his courage. The people, as they waited in Jerusalem, concluded that he would not come. After all, a man would have to be foolhardy indeed to take on the whole might and authority of Jewish officialdom. Of course he would not come. No one expected him to come to this feast, things being what they were. But you know, the people had underestimated Jesus. He was not fearful. He was courageous under God. Consequently, when the time came for his appearance, nothing, not all the rulers of Israel, no, not even the hosts of hell, would hinder him. William Barclay, who notes the presence of a similar courage in those who follow Jesus, writes thus of Martin Luther. Luther was a man who hurled defiance at cautious souls who sought to hold him back from being too venturesome. He took what seemed to him the right course despite all cardinals, popes, kings, and emperors together with all devils in hell. When he was cited to appear at Worms to answer for his attack on the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, he was warned of the danger in which he stood if he went. His answer was, I would go if there were as many devils in Worms as there are tiles on the housetops. When told that Duke George would capture him, he answered, I would go if it rained, Duke George's. It was not that Luther was not afraid, for often he made his greatest statements with a voice and with knees that shook, but he had that courage which conquered fear, which, we might add, he had learned from Jesus and in which many others who have also known Jesus share. Thus Barclay concludes, The Christian does not fear the consequences of doing the right thing. He fears the consequences of not doing it. Well, this brings us to our conclusion, and it leads me to ask, where are you in this summary of these three great protagonists? Each of us must be identified with one. To say that it is not your fight, that you are not for Christ or against him, that you have other concerns, these sayings put you in the camp of the common people who were sympathetic, but who would not come out openly for Jesus and therefore miss their moment. Jesus was there, but they could not decide either for him or against him. Consequently, one week they were with the mob who welcomed him into Jerusalem with palm branches, shouting, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the next they were with the mob that shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. These people do not make history. They are the victims of history. Moreover, they are the victims of their own sin and selfishness, too, for to such it is just too costly to be identified with the Nazarene. What is the cost if you or anyone else is to be identified with Jesus? First, there is renunciation. When Jesus asked men to come to him, the simplest form of his call was simply, follow me. There can be no following without a previous forsaking of all that keeps you from him. The disciples had forsaken all, so they were with Jesus in Ephraim, but these who were in Jerusalem had forsaken nothing. Consequently, they were not with Jesus, and they did not even know where they might find him. Some people are in their shoes today because they will not renounce their sin, their plans for their own life, their own conception of themselves. Second, 
To follow Jesus, one must confess him openly. This is also costly. Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Or again, he said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before man, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. If you find yourself in the great camp of the uncommitted and are disturbed by it, this is the way to move into the camp of Christ's followers. First, forsake all that can keep you from him. And second, confess him publicly. Will you do it? Will you say, yes, I have been uncommitted, but I will turn from my sin and my own plans for myself, and I will follow Jesus. If you do, God will bless you. He will save you. The Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What will happen if you do not? Well, before long you will find yourself in the second category, the category of those who are opposed to Jesus. This will occur because it's impossible ultimately to be neutral. Eventually you will have to decide, and when you decide against him, you will be among those of the opposition whose eyes are increasingly blinded and whose hearts are hardened. On the other hand, what will happen if you do believe? You will increasingly become like Jesus. You may suffer, as he did. Jesus warned that his way would be costly, but you will also become like him in insight, timing, and courage, even in this life. You will amount to something, and you will know God's full blessing both in this life and in the life to come.
And now, our Father, we ask you to take the words of this text and apply them to the heart of each one who is listening. If there are those listening who are uncommitted, we ask that you will work in them to bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon your own, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, your love, and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide through Christ our Lord. Amen. Following Jesus means more than just going to church or having a positive opinion of Him. If you want to follow Christ, you must renounce your sin, your plans for your life, yourself, and boldly confess before others your allegiance to Him. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, His Hour Not Yet Come or simply ask for message number 1326. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA 19103. Call 1 800 488 1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, His Hour Not Yet Come. Message number 1326. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.